If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durimple. And today we have an extraordinary story, one of the most remarkable individuals to emerge from the whole horrific tale of the Middle Passage and the Caribbean plantation system. It's the life of Lauda Equiano, uh, one of the most famous and most significant black Englishmen of the 18th century, a man of extraordinary initiative and skill, able to turn his hands to all sorts of things, who wrote a famous autobiography. It's also a political work that had real and actual knock-on effect with the abolition movement. Also, it should be said, there is now a brand of rum named after him. There's an undersea cable named after him that links the west coast of Africa with Lisbon that follows the route that the first Portuguese slavers took. A lot of the story uh, that we will be telling comes from his own narrative, uh, even though the story of his early life being snatched from his family and taken across the middle passage to be sold as a slave has been called into question subsequently by some scholars, uh, and we'll be going into that later. But Anita, tell me about this man. Where was he born? Who was he? And uh, and why are we interested in him? Right. Can I, but before before I get into to that, because as you say, there are some recent scholars who are saying, actually, liar, liar, pants on fire, Equiano, you weren't. You weren't <laughs> you born where you said you were. You weren't born in Africa at all. But just before I, can I do the elevator pitch for who he was? Because I yeah, think you would do. like him very much. So this is a man who, having gone through the worst depredations that humanity can throw at another human, right? He ends up being one of the best networkers in London. He is a prodigious writer, not just, as you say, of, of, of his narrative, but also of articles, pamphlets, papers. He never sold the copyright of his book, which is unthinkable at the time. He never sold it. It was so popular, this narrative of his life that we're going to talk about in more detail, that it went through nine editions and every single penny came to him, not to anybody else. It came to him because he was very savvy when it came to money. So he spent his life, the latter part of his life, if we call him Equiano the Older, which we'll get to a lot later on, giving book tours signing autographs. Does he sound like someone you know? Uh, and, you know, he was he was sort of the man about town. He was the man that people wanted to know, but he didn't start that way. So let's first of all, take him at his word. Let's take him at his word. So when he wrote the, the interesting narrative of uh, Olauda Equiano of Africa, 
told by himself. You know, there's a great frontispiece in, in his book, which is a picture of him looking very grand, like a gentleman dressed in Western clothes. Much reproduced in, in, in books today. Yeah. Every which where and everywhere. I mean, we were talking about the Joshua Reynolds picture um, of Francis Barber. This is almost as ubiquitous, or maybe even more so than that, yeah. that image. So well, what he starts off by saying in, in his book is really interesting, I think. He says, I, I offer here the history of neither a saint, a hero, nor a tyrant. I believe there are few events in my life which have not happened to many. It is true, incidents of it are numerous, and did I consider myself an European, I might say my sufferings were great. But when I compare my lot with that of most of my countrymen, I regard myself as a particular favourite of heaven, and I acknowledge the mercies of providence in every occurrence of my life. Yeah, so, that's amazing, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And yet his life, you know, has the, uh, as laid down in his autobiography, has the lineaments of one of those 18th century novels. This is an autobiography. It's not a, a work of fiction. However much people may have cast some doubts on his origins, whether he came from the Carolinas or from Africa. But he arranges his material in exactly the way that, say, Samuel Richardson arranges the, uh, the ups and downs of the lives of Pamela or Tom Jones, or the way that Thackeray arranges the life of Barry Lyndon that got made into that uh, wonderful movie. And this, this sensation that, which I think is so telling about the 18th century, that uh, life is full of, uh, of hidden trapdoors, full of hidden pits that you can just plunge down into and, and all your hopes suddenly disappear overnight. Uh, and this, I think, is something that's very common in that period. I think life was very fragile and, and you know, all the more so if rather than uh, an aspiring Irish gallant like Barry Lyndon, you're in fact a black man in a white country where most black men are enslaved and have very little control over their own lives. So when he talks about his own story, he says he was born in 1745 in a province called Igbo. Now, Igbo is, is southeastern Nigeria. And he was given by his family, the people who loved him, the name Olauda. So he came from a, a large family. So he says the youngest in a family of seven children, six boys, one girls, there were more siblings, but they died, he says. And it seems to be a happy childhood, but it is in the kingdom of Benin. And we've we've talked about the problems in Benin, haven't we, before? Yes, when we had Vincent on last week, he had this extraordinary fact in his amazing book, Taki's Revolt, that the there was depopulation 100 miles inland in Benin because people were very obviously so worried about slaving parties coming uh, and taking them and, and selling them off to whoever would buy them in the, in the slavery ports. But he is brought up in a village, he says, beyond that. And even so, he falls party to a group of African slavers who lift him from his house with, yeah. his, with his, his, his sister. Yeah, I mean, he, talk, he talks about sort of, it is two men and a woman. I mean, notably, you know, we talked about this with Vincent, there, there were women who were involved. And also the film, you know, the, the Warriors of Dahomey, they, they talk about women warriors in a very heroic way, but there were women slavers who, who were going around from the kingdoms of Dahomey. African women slavers, just African to be explicit about this. African women slavers, yeah. exactly, who were taking, picking up children and taking them, and men and women, and taking them away to, to be slaved. And he talks about this in the book, and it's it's almost the opening of, of the insight into his life, his early memories, of being sort of clutching his sister, being utterly afraid, 
and that notion of not knowing what's going to happen to you and then being forcibly separated from the clasp of his sister. So immediately he is making himself a human being and he's talking about family in a way that is accessible to people who don't look like him, who don't have the color of skin that he does. And he has this kind of uh, idyllic description of his childhood before this, living uh, with simple food, a simple life in the village. Uh, His people, he say, are favored by slavers because they're hardy, intelligent, they possess integrity. And he says that no one uh, from my tribe is idle. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we all look at our, our childhoods and by and large, we say they were they were perfect and perfect and everything was lovely until. And the until happens when he's he's taken away. Aged 11. Yeah. Aged 11. Yeah. We, I mean, we don't know what happens to his family, but he certainly seems to suggest that they, they are killed, but he never sees them again. It's just he and his sister who, who were taken away. And he talks about that feeling of being completely separate completely alone. He also talks about not understanding what, what is going on, that you know there is, there is a brutality. They don't know why they're being hit. They don't know why they're being shouted at. They don't know what people are saying to them. And it is when he's passed into the hands of, of sort of the white slavers who are going to take him on. He's separated from his sister. We don't know what becomes of her after this. After moving several times through different hands, he says. Yeah, exactly. He he suddenly comes face to face with the ship that is going to change his life. And I'll just, I'll, I'll read you a little bit of what he says, because I, I think he writes very beautifully. And that's what's notable about Equiano. He says, the first object which saluted my eyes when I arrived on the coast was the sea and a slave ship, which was then riding at anchor and waiting for its cargo. And these filled me with astonishment. So he's like a little boy, like, oh, this is so cool. You know, he's never seen a boat and he's probably never seen the sea before. It filled me with this astonishment, which was soon connected with terror when I was carried on board. And I was immediately handled and tossed up to see if I was sound by some of the crew. And I was now persuaded that I had gotten into a world of bad spirits and that they were going to kill me. So that, again, I mean, the economy of expression of what this young boy was feeling at the time, I think is is really something else. And I think what we should remember is that while in a sense we're now very familiar with the Middle Passage and its horrors, an 18th century audience reading this book might never actually have not only not read this, but even thought about it. Their contact with slavery was limited to the sugar they put in their tea, uh, with the tobacco they smoked, or or the cotton that they wore on their bodies. And it was just like today, you know, it's very easy to go to a supermarket and buy a a steak and forget that this was once part of a living cow. It's very easy Mm. not to, you know, to put these into different categories. You look at a commodity, you don't necessarily uh, associate it with a living being. And, And this is very much, I think, what the 18th century audience did that they that they that they put this all in a completely different room slavery was very easy to keep out of sight and out of mind and equiano for the first time writes a first person narrative that's read very widely by british public and this description that he gives uh, and tell us about this anita now the description of the middle passage would have been completely new yeah I, I absolutely because you know people don't talk about it what they can't see they don't know about and nobody really talked about the middle passage He says, you know, I wish for my former slavery in preference to my present situation, which was filled with horrors of every kind still heightened by my ignorance of what I was to undergo. I was not long suffered to indulge my grief because I was soon put down under the decks and there I received such a salutation in my nostrils as I have never experienced in my life. 
the loathsomeness of the stench he, he talks about. He talks, he puts you right in the picture, you know, the crying together. I became so sick and low, he says, I wasn't able to eat and nor had I the least desire to taste anything. And I now wished for the last friend, death, to relieve me. Isn't that awful? That's a terrible, terrible description. And this, again, you know, we can't emphasize how new this must have been for an 18th century audience. They never had a black man describe the process of actually being enslaved himself and what people must have felt when they, when, when they read this and, and put two and two together. It's very easy to, I'm sure it's very easy to ignore all this. I mean, it's very easy for us to look back. He also, you know, doesn't sanitize it because he puts sort of the, the, the white slavers or the white crew right into the middle of the picture from the moment that he's sort of thrown up in the air and, and, and weighed and, and seen whether he's worthy or not. He talks about not eating, you know, this, this trauma of being on the ship that is about to embark on the Middle Passage is so harrowing to him that he s- decides he's not going to eat. He can't eat. He wants, he's sick. He just can't have any food. He talks about two of the white men offered me eatables and on my refusing to eat, one of them held me fast by the hands and laid me across, I think, the windlass and tied my feet while the other flogged me severely. I had never experienced anything of this kind before, and, and although not being used to the water, I naturally feared the element the first time I saw it, yet nevertheless, I could have got over the nettings, I could have jumped over the sides, but I could not, and besides, the crew used to watch us so closely, uh, who were not chained down to the decks, lest we should leap into the water, and I have seen some of these poor African prisoners most severely cut for attempting to do so, and hourly whipped for not eating. This indeed was the case with myself. So just remember, this is an 11-year-old boy this is happening to. He also describes how children younger than him are on board uh, and that they keep falling into the hideous, what he calls the necessary tub, the, the latrine downstairs, or just the tub, I suppose, that where, where this excrement goes. And these children falling in and drowning, it just gets kind of worse and worse. Yeah. And, and, and everybody chained up that picture, you know, making it visual for people who are reading his, his book of people chained together, of people, you know, suffering in darkness under those decks. I think it is the first time, as you say, it's the first time people in Britain are actually made to see what it was like to be one of those people who was chained and being kidnapped, in effect, from their homeland. And you know what's interesting is that it, there are some modern tellings of Equiano, some modern investigations that suggest actually he wasn't born in Africa. He was, or he said at a couple of points that he was from the Carolinas. But he says, you know, that beginning thing is that this is not my unique experience. This is the unique of many people. So there is this sort of belief that maybe he's talked to a lot of people and that is the story he's also beginning to tell. But who, you know, knows we're going to take a break now and when we come back we are going to tell the increasing horrors of what happens to him when he arrives in barbados this episode is brought to you by amazon prime you know amazon prime is not just a shipping subscription right it's got everything including streaming tv and movies on prime video and of course prime's fast free shipping Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back. We've just been talking about uh, Equiano, the author of the first real autobiography of a slave and the extraordinary effect it had uh, when he published this and went on book tours across Britain in the uh, late 18th century. Uh, and Anita, you, you took us up from the, the uh, Middle Passage and, and uh, 
broke just before we got to Bridgetown, Barbados. Yeah, so um, he arrives in, in, in the West Indies in Bridgetown and at the slave market, he is watching and describing families being torn apart. He sees, you know, husbands torn from wives and children screaming and it's the sound of screaming and that stench again that he makes very visceral. And he also makes these sort of cries in the middle which become then a, a, a great foundation stone for abolitionists things like this, oh, ye nominal Christians, might not an African ask you, learned you from this from your God who says unto you, do unto all men as men should do unto you? Is it not enough that we are torn from our country and friends to toil for your luxury and lust? And it's things like this, real, you know, within the narrative of what happened to him, mm. there are these battle cries that go up, which become, you know, they're very easy to quote. They're very easy to replicate. You can sort of feel that pulpit in them as they come through, and they proved to be very effective at the time. So he then goes on to Virginia, and he gets bought by a man called Michael Henry Pascal, a lieutenant in the Royal Navy. What happens to him then? Well, first of all, he gets a new name. So, you know, that this is the thing that we've talked about with Vincent uh, before, that the part of the dehumanization of a person is to rob them of everything that linked them to their, their home. And he is called... At first, he's called Michael, and then Pascal decides he's going to rename him Gustavus Vassa. And he says, I'm naming you after a Swedish king who freed his people from the tyranny of the Danes, which is just <laughs> cruel, you know, yeah. something that you're never going to experience at all in your lifetime. Was that his? Was that the motive? Just to or, there was that thing also just to call slaves by sort of heroic names like sort of Hannibal and. Now, he does also say that, you know, this is a man who f freed his slaves and you're not going to be freed. And at the, at the yeah. first, you know, when he's called by his name, um, Equiano refuses to answer. He says, that's not my name. Because he's been known by two other names before he's actually been bought by Pascal. He's been called Jacob at one point, and he's been called Michael at another point. And he says, well, you know, Gustavus is not my name. And he is thrashed. He's flogged for it. And a few times he doesn't reply, you know, when he's called, you know, Gustavus, come here. He doesn't reply. And so he's flogged. He talks about being cuffed repeatedly for not replying to this. He's well treated compared to others who were tortured and thrown overboard, but it's not lovely. And Pascal is not kind either. But again, and this is typical of the narrative, you, you move from these, these moments of, uh, of horror to moments of kindness. And it's on that ship that he meets Richard Baker, yeah. uh, a white man, a few years older than him, and they become very close. Well, I mean, a boy, more than anything, like a boy. He's a, he's a boy from a family that, that has slaves themselves and he he because i suppose the age difference is 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 not great and they're surrounded by big hairy men <laughs> you know on this <laughs> voyage these two kind of cleave together and he describes in his book again it's really quite touching how you know first of all is that you know they sort of move closer together he doesn't speak english but with Richard, and Richard tried to communicate with him a little bit, he starts picking up a few words of English here and there. And then they start becoming even more friendly. And then there are terrible storms where they hold each other, hold onto each other's bosoms until the storms pass or these frightening things pass, like little children would. And he and Richard become very, very close. I mean, to the point where he doesn't call him a friend, but he calls him the most decent person he has ever met who takes time for him, you know, who, who sort of would give him food off his plate, who sticks up for him on these voyages, who is the most humane person that he has met in a number of months. And Richard really sort of keeps him sane, I suppose. And it's at this point that he arrives for the first time 
in England and it's snowing, a wonderful passage when oh, he's I describing the snow on the, on the, on the deck. It is, it is, it is quite, quite gorgeous. I mean, I don't know whether you've got the, the, the passage there, but I'll tell you what, what actually happens to him. He's, he comes and I think it's, um, I think it's Falmouth. They sort of, they, they dock in Falmouth and he's been in the cabin and he comes out. He's one of the earliest out onto the deck and it's been snowing and he thinks that somebody's played a prank on the captain and has poured salt all over the decks and he can't understand it and he doesn't want to get into trouble for it. So he, he runs down and he tells one of his, you know, uh, shipmates, he goes, somebody has poured salt all over the decks everywhere. And, the, and obviously knowing what this is, the man goes, go, go and bring me a handful of it. <laughs> bring me a handful. So he says he's, describes this feeling of grabbing a handful of this white stuff from the deck and running down with it and it is cold and it's kind of biting his hand and then the man sort of laughing at him goes taste it and he puts it in his mouth and it is his very first experience of snow and it's beautiful this is why i think this this book had such an effect because it isn't just that it's new it isn't just who wrote it 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 it's very well written and it yes. has very good stories and continues to have extraordinary uh, ups and downs and twists of fate throughout absolutely right absolutely right so when he when he gets to england richard baker and he are still going to be in touch and they're going to be in touch until richard baker dies, which is not too far in the future. But until then, he always regards Baker as his friend. Baker not only has, has taught him how to speak English, also on these long voyages, he's taught him how to read. And there's this beautiful thing that Equiano talks about where he sees Baker and the captain for hours. They're sitting there with books and he thinks that they're talking to books and that the books are talking back. So secretly, sometimes he gets hold of books and he talks to them. You know, saying hello, hello, <laughs> and then it doesn't talk back, and, and, the, he's very and the upset. book doesn't talk back, and he's <laughs> distraught that the books don't talk back. But anyway, look through through his trip to England, he gets to stay with Pascal's cousin Mary Guerin, and it sounds as if she's she's fairly okay to him. Yes, I mean he gets very sick there. Uh, and and he, ha- he nearly has his leg amputated, but I think she helps him recover. Yeah, they want to take his leg, but he absolutely is adamant. No, 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 because he knows, you know, if you are, if you are a young black boy with no leg, there is basically no hope for you. And he talks about being delivered that he survives. You know, he's strong enough to survive this. And then he goes off to the Seven Year War. I mean, extraordinary life. So he's in the middle of this of, of what is, in many ways, the First World War. It's a war that encompasses the the Caribbean, Scotland, Ireland, the continent, uh, and India. Uh, yeah. And in the middle of all this is this is this boy on board a British ship. In, so we're talking seventeen fifty eight, which would make him only thirteen years old, William. I mean, tell us a bit more about the Seven Years' War because I think you know we we sort of mentioned it. It is as close to so it, it was, some people call it World War One, don't they? I mean, the First World War. Yeah. So it, in America, it's known as the French and Indian Wars, and it's all that stuff that Daniel Day-Lewis leaping through waterfalls and uh, rescuing blonde girls and playing sort of Scottish reels in uh, wooden forts on, on Lake Ohio. But it's the same war which, at the other end of the world, brings... Robert Clive and uh, uh, Juggett set together to fight the Battle of Plassey. And, uh, and so it's this extraordinary conflict. And, it, and it's one of the crucial moments when British naval power is the, is the thing that changes the course of the war. And you have the British Navy sailing all over, attacking West Africa, attacking, capturing Havana, capturing in, in this part of the world, the slave ports of Gori, which is a, a French port, I think now in modern Senegal. And 
here we have our, our man, Aquiano, age 13, as a cabin boy uh, in this extraordinary moment of, uh, of, of British naval expansion. And he describes the battles. He describes, you know, the ships going past. He describes sort of coming up against a man of war and, the, you know, the crew are quite relaxed because they think it might be a British ship and then it raises its, its colours and it's a French ship and how close they are and how lucky they are. At one point, they're assuming they're sailing towards a, a British ship, but it isn't. And This is all in the Mediterranean. It's, him, it's all, it? yeah, yeah, and you know, if, if only that. they knew that that his ship was so unprepared, all their cannons are still sort of they're not out, they're not pointed, and if this ship knew, they could have sank them at any moment. And the Mediterranean in the Seven Year War is uh, is uh, one of those conflicts that goes up and down. The British try to take various islands. There is a, a complete naval failure at the beginning, which results in the I think it's Admiral Bing gets shot for the failure to do his duty, and then there's this great moment. Where when the British managed to spring on the entire French fleet, which are sheltering in Quiberon Bay, south of Brittany, and blow it out of the water in a sort of Pearl Harbor-style sort of preemptive attack. And this is what this kid is seeing. He's seeing all this very, very exciting moment. Yeah. And and he's excited by it. He is. And he's also, at the same time, he's learning. So, you know, his, his friend uh, Richard or, or Dick, his best friend Dick, who he's met on that first uh, ship with, with Pascal, He's now not with him. They're separated. They're on separate ships now. But his education continues. So, so Dick has taught him how to speak English. He's also taught him how to, you know, how the books can talk back. So he's taught, taught him rudimentary letters. But then he meets another really pivotal man in his life. He's, this man is called Daniel Quinn. He's a man of about 40 years old, and he, he becomes a real mentor to him because he takes the time to say, look, this is how you shave. This is how you dress your hair. This is how you look, you know, not like a savage. This is how you read the Bible. And that is very important. That becomes extremely important. And it also colours a great deal of the style with which Equiano writes about slavery and writes about the morality of slavery, something that's been missing from the debate completely until this point. And, and it, it, it's, it's a black man who points this out to a British audience. He keeps saying, you nominal Christians, how yeah. could you justify this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll just, I'll just, uh, you know, a little bit more about this, this man, Daniel, because I think, you know, the, the, the good people need to have a little time spent on them because while everybody else could be cruel and awful and, you know, at one point in the, uh, on these voyages, they keep telling him that they're going to eat him. So when he's, when he's <laughs> on his first voyage, they, they, they take, the crew take great sport at just torturing this frightened little boy and saying, you know what? We've just got you along because we're going to eat you. And anytime he does something wrong, they say, well, tomorrow we're going to cook you and eat you. He keeps a assuming every time on the first voyage, not this one, you know, the, the one during the Seven Years' War, but the one previous to that, every time the wind goes down, he is absolutely convinced, Equiano, that he is going to be offered up as a sacrifice to appease the wind gods so that the wind will blow again. So he keeps, you know, in his heart saying, just blow for God's sake, blow so I don't get sacrificed. So that's the terror that is slowly dissipating as he learns how naval life works. Um, what are his duties? I mean, is he basically a cabin boy? Is he looking, is he basically a, a servant or what is he doing? No, he's doing hard, hard work. He's sort of dragging things across the ship. He's doing basically whatever putting, he's told to putting do. Putting sails up the rigging and all that kind of stuff. All of it, yeah. all of it and all of it. I mean, he doesn't get a cushy number by any stretch of the imagination. He's, he's working hard on these voyages. But when he talks about Daniel Quinn, when he writes about Daniel Quinn, he, he describes him like a father to me. And, you know, this is actually, you know, somebody longing for a parent who has been ripped away for his parent. I, I found that really very sweet. And throughout his life, you see Equiano looking for father figures because he just needs someone. He's still sort of that little boy 
at heart. They even make plans to work together. They even talk about, and this is really important, that Daniel Queen is the one who puts it into his head, after you free yourself of slavery, we, uh. we will make plans. We'll go traveling around the world. You know, they're, they're just, he gives, him, he gives him hope and dreams which is really wonderful. And then, as you say... What I think you find in this chapter is that Equiano's identity is significantly shifting at this point. He's part of the British Navy. He's part of the club. He's fighting against this common enemy, the French. And he starts to visualize himself as an Englishman uh, and has this idea that at least he has the hope of becoming one. He can now speak the language at a good level. When he was in London, he'd gone to school. He'd learned to read and write. And he actually starts to model himself on the English gentleman that he says he admires. He was no longer trying to look on them as uh, spirits, he says, but as men superior to us. So this is this sort of, you know, in a sense, this sort of conscious colonization, we'd say today, I think, of, uh, of Equiano's identity. And he has this sensation that his his nature is changing. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's sort of Queen allows him to, but also he proves himself on these voyages. You know, the, the captains that he serves under and the way in which he, he writes about those experiences means he's pretty handy. You know, he's, he's learning stuff. He's learning about navigating. He's learning about how ships work. He's learning about how warfare works. And he's learning that he likes a life at sea. And he pleases his captains. You know, his captains are kind to him once he's actually, once he can speak the language, once they can no longer take, you know, the rise out of him by saying they're going to eat him every five minutes, you know, he, he, he can relax into the role of being part of the crew. And it's a very different structure to being on land because you know what, if you don't all pull together as a crew on a ship, your ship's going to sink. And so he becomes de facto part of that family. And then this is a crucial moment in his life in February 1759, what happens? Well... 1759, the, the Guerins, who, you know, this cousin, Mary Guerin, who's the cousin of Pascal, his, his buyer, the one who owns him, decides to get him baptized. And that is massive. We've touched on this before because it was yep. not a given. It just, you know, slaves were not baptized. British slaves were not baptized. You, you find much more of this in the Spanish and the Portuguese slave colonies. They do, the Jesuits are there working away. And, and this is a, a huge deal in, in that world. But the, the, the British have always been far more pragmatic about their use of religion. And so, for example, in India, uh, there's far fewer missionaries. During, certainly during the 18th century, there's more in the 19th century because they're worried they're going to get in the way of profit. And, and I think there's a similar thing going on here. And also they start feeling that they're part of the club and let, for heaven's sake, don't let them think they're part of it. Actually, you know, the thing with Indian missionaries, I, I was really interested that something I'm writing about at the moment, it's a bit of a dogleg, but it's interesting. But the, the Raj looked very dimly in the 1900s at missionaries who were trying to proselytize in places because they thought, my God, you know what? If chewing a pig fat covered cartridge can start a mutiny, yep. you challenging the triumvirate of, you know, Shiv, Brahma and Vishnu is going to just kill us here. So they weren't very friendly or supportive to missionaries. Well, I mean, the British were right about that. You, you have very few British missionaries in India in the 18th century. Then suddenly there's this big evangelical takeover of the company. You have somebody called Charles Grant taking it over and he changes the, the rule. And you have not only missionaries allowed, but missionaries sponsored by the East India Company, and you start having colonels reading stuff to them, uh, to sepoys on parade, uh, and you have missionaries put up in company lodgings. So in India, there's this realization 
that the, the, the Christianity and the company are, are one and the same thing. And that mm. is one of the main causes, certainly in the British analysis of the mutiny in 1857. So after the mutiny, missionaries are reined in again. And in the 19th century, there's very little missionary activity. It's so, I mean, it is it is really interesting, and yet you know he he gets a he gets a card, a ticket, or a key to the club because the Garens do baptize him, and he does say you know it becomes central to who he is. It, it it also kind of coincides with peacetime because you know the Seven Years' War, all of that daring do that was very diverting, and he was part of the crew in a, in the midst of a war, and so you know there was there was lots of things to to see and be excited about. It's over, and he allows himself to dream that Queen dream, you know, Daniel Queen's dream of I will be free soon, and I can see the world on my terms. And then. As so often in his narrative, he falls through the trapdoor again. And, and, and this is something that completely breaks his heart because the person who, in a sense, throws him through the trapdoor is none other than Pascal, who he's come to think of as family. And I don't know why he thought of him as family because actually Pascal is a, it's not literary, but he's a bit of a shit, actually. Yeah. He's no, really not a very nice man at all. At this point, it, it becomes clear that Pascal is not someone to be trusted and, and perhaps he has no interest at all in, in looking after Equiano, whatever his cousins, the, the Garins, may have thought. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, he says, you know, um, I, I had never once supposed in all my dreams of freedom that he would think of detaining me any longer than I wished. He thought, you know, this is what he was owed. He thought this is what happened would happen. And then Pascal makes it quite clear that he's going to sell him. You know, and and even Ugh. though most of his shipmates uh, are saying he should be free, they're sort of saying, you know, they and they'll help him be free because he's one of them, he's one of their gang. But instead, he is sold. He's sold to Captain James Doran, with whom he almost immediately has bad blood. I mean, they fall out almost immediately. Oh, it, as I said, it, what's so intriguing about this is that it. The rhythm of his life, he finds a protector, he loses him, he finds his family, he loses them, he, he gets Christianity, he's sold, has the say exactly this feeling of, of, of the novels which are written at the time, and yet it all checks out, other than yeah. possibly the, the, the first section of his of his childhood. That's the one thing scholars have criticised. Well, yeah. criticised or, or just, you know, questioned, because they say he said different things to different people. He falls out with his, his, his new captain or his new owner, Captain James Doran. And it's because, you know, he he knows that this man is not going to free him. He's not even going to pretend to free him. Pascal, you know, may not have been great, but this guy Doran is even worse. You know, he says, uh, for I have been baptized and the laws of the land say no one has a right to sell me. And he's sort of saying to Doran, you know, I, this, this, what has happened here is not right. I'm baptized. You can't do this to me. Doran hates it. He thinks he's a bit uppity and a bit too learned and talks too much. And he says, you know, if you don't behave yourself, Equiano, I have ways of making you behave yourself. And he stays with Doran for years, he goes, uh, but he's forced to fight on these ships. So they, you know, for amusement, they start, they match up people of the same kind of heights and sizes and weights, and they make them fight. And he's still just a boy, remember? He's just still, you know, 13, 14 years old now. And he says, he describes it as the first time he ever knows what it feels like to have a bloody nose. So, you know, they're there. He says he fights, you know, they're, they're made to fight these two boys of similar size and him. And everybody's around them in a ring and they're cheering and they're shouting and they're screaming for them. And he doesn't really know what to do. And so he's just getting pummeled, but then he stands up and then they cheer for him when he stands up. And so he thinks, okay, this is what I should do. It's the first time he ever sees blood coming from his face, from his nose and knows what a bloody nose is like. I think we're going to have to 
end this episode here, but we're going to uh, go straight on on Thursday and continue with this extraordinary life of Equiano. And we are going to find him back in the Caribbean that he'd left how many ever years earlier, well, a decade earlier. So that's all from Empire Pod this week from me, William Drumple. And me, Anita Arnand. That was deliberate, wasn't it? No, no, it wasn't really. <laughs> <laughs> it really wasn't. <laughs> 